0: Welcome to Success The Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at Delap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode of Success That Last. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. True to form in this week's episode, we tackle an evidence-based approach to greater owner flourishing and happiness. To help us unpack this topic, we invited Dr. Brian Lieberk onto the show. He's a board-certified doctor in psychiatry and psychosomatic medicine. He completed his medical school at Oregon Health and Sciences University and ultimately his residency at Boston University Medical Center. He's a doctor, author, speaker, and as we find out in the podcast, a painter too. In our conversation we explore the scientific relationship between our emotional health and our physical health, a functional litmus test to explore if our life and values are well aligned, and ultimately a contentment that's available to all of us if we can be fully present in even ordinary moments. If at the end of the show you're still interested in the topics that we discussed, reach out to us through Delap Wealth Advisory's website. We picked up 10 copies of Dr. Liebrich's book to hand out as a gift to the first 10 listeners that reach out to us. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode with Brian Liebrick. Dr. Brian Liebrick, welcome to Success at Last. I'm excited for our conversation today. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, we cover a lot of different topics on this show, but generally we're trying to create clarity and confidence around decisions, but the underlying purpose of these decisions is we're really trying to help clients flourish and so i think often we anticipate more professional success creates more financial success that financial success creates flexibility and flourishing and that's not necessarily always the case and so when this opportunity to have a conversation with you about flourishing and happiness and kind of the connection between psychological and emotional health and our physical health came up i I had to jump on it so you and I've had a minute to get to know one another, but let's introduce you to our audience. Who are you and kind of what professionally do you uh, fill your days with, you know, in these times? Sure, well,
1: I'm a psychiatrist by training and I'm board certified in psychiatry as well as psychosomatic medicine. And I am the regional medical director of behavioral health for Providence Health and Services in Oregon. So I cover a wide range of services from patients who are very ill to patients who are seeing their primary care physician with life stressors and everything in between. So I've had a pretty broad spectrum of patients having issues from day-to-day life that we have to very serious mental health crises. But I've had a special interest in quality of life as it relates to our health. And that has been some of my focus in mind-body medicine that are our thoughts, and our feelings and our actions have a lot more to do with our physical health than actually our own physical bodies that we have a lot of control over whether or not we remain healthy or don't remain healthy. And that's led to a lot of research in recent years, not on disease, but what makes somebody happy and healthy. And there's been a lot of literature, particularly over the last 10 or 15 years on what improves people's quality of life and what makes people happy and what doesn't make people happy and this huge gap that a lot of people have in their understanding and practice of that
0: i think that's fascinating i mean we from a financial planning perspective anytime we can use data we try to we we actually call our approach to investment management an evidence-based approach you know using 50 plus years of academic peer-reviewed information to kind of inform decisions and so I think it's awesome to have an opportunity to think about happiness and human flourishing in in the same context of what does the evidence suggest. So I guess let's jump into that. I mean, we'll often talk about wealth is more than financial. There's spiritual capital, human capital, relational capital, there's financial capital, but then there's social and community capital. So I guess kind of as you think about the connection between emotional health you know, our thoughts, our emotions, and our physical health, kind of what some of the evidence out there suggest?
1: Sure. Well, there is actually quite a bit of evidence. For example, there's really no evidence that people who earn a lot of money or who have a lot of money are happier than people who do not above the poverty level. And that, there's just a number of studies in that regard. And so, What's come out of that is the understanding that once you've achieved a certain, let's say, income, we become accustomed to that very quickly. In the literature, it's called the hedonistic treadmill. And so the more you earn, the more you adapt to it. You get a fancier car, you get a bigger mortgage, you get comfortable with where you're at. And it takes the next level to achieve that next sort of dopamine hit to have more stuff and whatnot. And there's also a fair amount of interest in people feel good about themselves if they have acquired more and if they earn more because they feel like they're more valued. They've achieved something. People will like them more or respect them more if they've achieved more as represented by the stuff that they have. And there's really no evidence that that's the case because it's a never-ending cycle of having to do more in order to prove oneself that one's of value to oneself. And so what comes out of that is people begin spending their time to prove a point that never needed to be proved in the first place. In my own example, no one I know really cares how much I earn or what kind of house I have or what kind of car I drive. They care about me or don't care about me as a person in and of themselves, mostly for my stupid jokes, which I do take quite a bit of pride
0: in. (laughs) Well, hopefully you unveil a couple today.
1: Well, We'll see how it goes. But people tend to spend their time being busy without having a realization of what they're being busy about. And this is not only in the literature, but it's in the novels and whatnot. It's it's written in every religion, every culture about the the need for internal satisfaction as opposed to external gratification from other people which people never get and it's actually gotten worse in the last 10 years with twitter and whatnot that that we open ourselves up to negative feedback and we tend to take on that feedback that matches our own internal insecurities because if it didn't match it wouldn't resonate with us and we would brush that off and so without understanding what do I want out of my life? How do I want to be spending my time? We end up going with what we think we ought to be doing or what society thinks we ought to do or what our parents want us to do as opposed to what we actually want to do ourselves.
0: Interesting. So when we go through a planning process, we're attempting often to have a conversation around values. How would you want, for example, your wealth to impact your family, your marriage, your kids and your community? hopefully trying to use those values to create specific subset of goals. And then at that point, then we begin to talk kind of specific tactics and strategies. But I'm curious to what extent you think people have taken the time to really inventory values, which ones are, are, are they aware of and which might be uh, subconscious or, or uninformed, misinformed. Uh, let's spend a minute talking about values. To what extent should we inventory them or how do we inventory them better?
1: Well, I think that's an excellent point because I believe that if we understand what we value and then we set goals based on their values, that's how we get our values into our daily lives. I think a lot of people aren't owning what they actually value, but go with what they think they ought to go because they don't critically assess what's important to them. You see, we all have these automatic thoughts and feelings that go on all day long. We we basically do the same thing every day. We get up at the same time, we shower in the same way, we drive to work the same way, we talk to the same people about the same things. And so we just feel like that's the way uh, the world is and we don't look that there's a lot of other possibilities. And, And I've done this with thousands of people. When I ask people what they actually want out of their life, they often say, well, it's not possible. Well, for the most part, it is possible. It's just that they would have to change the way that they do what they're doing currently. Sometimes it can take one or two or three years if they want to change their career, but it certainly can be done. But people have to actually want it and then be willing to do the things necessary in order to make it happen. And so people will often, on um, first blush, tell you what the standard spiel is. My family is the most important thing to me. It's what people often say. But then they work 70 hours a week and then the weekend they've got conference calls or they're going to travel to see a client or whatnot. Their family really isn't necessarily the most important thing because I don't think their family cares how much money they're making or what their career is. And that's okay. It's okay to spend 80 hours a week on something you value and what you want. But I'll tell you how you know if, if you're living right now to your value is whether or not you're enjoying it. When you talk about it, do you light up? When you're doing it, do you feel content? If there's a feeling of discontent when you're doing what you say you want, you're not being true to yourself and what you're valuing. For example, we've all had projects where we've had to get up early and we've had to stay late and we've had to work on the weekends. It's just been a total grind it out, but we get it done and we're frustrated and you know, we're full of coffee and we're sleep deprived. Then you've had other times when you've had a goal and you're getting up early and you're hitting it hard and you're excited to go and you can't wait to get back to work after dinner. And that's being true to your value because that's something you really want to be doing. And of course, there are times when we, we have to do things we don't necessarily love to do, but it's part of a goal that we want. We still have that interest. And so it comes down to how being true to ourselves by how we feel in each moment as to whether or not it's actually something that we
0: value that we are pursuing. You know, in the book, actually, I'll plug your book because you're too humble to talk about it. Your book, Waking Up, Stress Management and Principles for Effective Living. I'll put that in the, uh, the podcast notes. You talked about concept around change, that people have a tendency to not change until the pain of their current circumstance exceeds the pain of change. And that's certainly something that probably all of us have observed in the lives of others, if not in in our own lives, if we do find things where what if we are working seventy five hours and it's kind of a bit of a drudgery, but we're struggling to to change, I guess how do we create maybe the necessary pain to change before we have kind of a a crisis, a health crisis, or a personal crisis, you know you've identified some misalignment in terms of where I'm allocating my time versus what I profess. To be a value, how can we positively disrupt our own lives prior to creating the pain necessary that often supports change? Sure. Well, a couple of things. A lot of the time, this crisis could have probably been
1: avoided. I wouldn't say consciously caused, but we often run ourselves into the ground till we can't do it anymore. And there's a sense of we don't have to do it anymore. There's not a sense of regret. If we know what we want, We then can plan. Um, I'll give you some typical examples. So, when I was in med school, about a third of my med school class had other careers. Some were nurses, some were attorneys, some were other things. And they decided that they wanted to become doctors and they started putting those things into their lives. Now, one of the issues around goals is that they are disruptive because a goal is a planned conflict with the status quo. In order to achieve a goal, it means you're not already doing it right now. It is a conflict. Can you say, a plan. That, say that
0: one more time? A goal is a planned conflict with the status quo. Did I just catch that right? Right. A goal is a planned conflict with the status quo because you're
1: going to do something different. Yeah. And so people are often uncomfortable with doing things different. As I said before, we often do the exact same thing
0: every day. There's a certain comfort in it. And there's also a certain... Inertia is a real thing. It's difficult to disrupt yourself sometimes. I will take exception only with the word difficult.
1: (laughs) I would say at times it's not easy. It can feel a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. But if you really want to do it, it's not difficult. It's exciting. Now, there are ways to achieve a goal that make it way easier on ourselves because most of us do not achieve goals on our own. I don't care who you say is a self-made person, they had a lot of help, a lot of help doing almost everything that they're going to do. So I, I came up with the four S's for developing goals, structure, support, skills, and serotonin. But in order to achieve a goal, just start with structure. You have to outline what is the end goal. You start with the end in mind from you know Steve Covey, Seven Rules of Highly Effective People, I think it's called what is I want to achieve at the end? Let's say I want to, I want to be healthier by that. I need to lose 35 pounds within a, in the next year, which means, you know, let's say a pound a week, but what exactly do I need to do? Well, I need to go to the gym. I need to change my diet, that kind of thing. So that's kind of the structure. The support is who's going to help you with that. And I'll tell you my personal and interrupt whenever you want, but I'll tell you my, my favorite personal story on support system. So after uh, my divorce and i had some health issues, I wasn't particularly in great shape. I joined a gym and I got a trainer, Tiffany. And Tiffany has a bundle of energy. And initially, I was meeting with her twice a week. And she would give me my exercises to do and whatnot. And she would go over my diet. But every Monday at four o'clock, she would weigh me. And I did not want to weigh more than the previous week because I didn't want to disappoint Tiffany. And even though I was just Tiffany's four o'clock appointment. I don't think she cared that much, really. I mean, she pretended to care, but you don't know how many muffins and potato chips and candy I did not eat because I didn't want to disappoint Tiffany with my weight being higher. And over, I don't know, over a year, my BMI, which is sort of a measure of your fat to muscle index, went from 26 to 15. I was in pretty good shape because of her. And it was just a little bit of a structure, a quite a bit of support and it allowed me to make uh, those positive changes and i would constantly say to my kids or whoever tiffany says i can't eat this tiffany says i should do these exercises tiffany says i need to avoid that and i did it so much to the point that for for the holidays a, a few years ago they gave me a, a coffee mug that says what would tiffany do and That's again
0: awesome.
1: it, yeah and again it was it was a structure and it was a little bit of support and so the third S is skills. What skills did I need? Yeah. I need to learn to change my diet a little bit. I need to exercise. And the last one is serotonin, which is our physical bodies. And there's yeah. elements of our physical body. I, I was having some neck pain and this and that. So, you know, I had some physical therapy. And so those four elements, whenever somebody achieves a goal, they generally are having those four elements in place. And you don't need to go to a trainer. You don't need to hire a, a coach. You could just have somebody you meet with coffee once a week and you say, well, this is the goal I'm working on. They say this is the goal I'm working on. And then the next Thursday when you meet for coffee, you don't really want to disappoint that person by saying, I haven't done anything on my goal in the last week. So it's a little bit of structure and support goes a really long way.
0: I love that. I love the framework of that. Brian, I wanted to float an idea that I read in a book and kind of crash it into kind of the empirical data and kind of your own real world experience. The book was called Atomic Habits. And at a high level, the the author's thesis, uh, I think it was James Clear, he said, a lot of the time, we start with kind of the result that we're trying to create. And then you kind of just, it's all about the achievement of the goal, but we don't really actually enjoy the goal pursuit. We don't extract any of the opportunity for enjoyment of pursuing the goal because very rarely is the goal in and of itself as rewarding or fulfilling as we would have anticipated it being. So getting to the goal was a grind and not enjoyable. You achieve the goal and then there's the hedonic treadmill and we're right back to where we were. So his argument was that we should start a bit with identity, which might be the values, right? And then, so for example, I'm a healthy person. I might not be physically healthy at the moment, but from an identity perspective, I want to be a healthy person. And what does a healthy person do? They eat right, they work out, they manage, they count their calories. And then the result is a lower BMI. It mm-hmm. seemed to resonate a bit with me because at times I've accomplished goals, but the actual experience leading up to it wasn't all that enjoyable. And the, the sustained behavior after I accomplished the goal was more difficult to maintain. It was kind of a, it didn't ever become like a hardwired habit like I would have expected. Is there any merit to kind of that thought is it pretty adjacent to what you were just talking about? I'd love your feedback. Yes, well, that brings up a whole other topic. That
1: So the literature points out that achieving big goals is nowhere near as satisfying as people think it's going to be. In fact, the big things that happen to us in our lives have relatively little to do with what, how happy we're going to be. For example, we really overestimate how happy we are gonna be if really positive things happen. And we really overestimate how depressed or sad we are gonna be when bad things happen because we are very resilient and we return to our set point very quickly. For example, studies on people who become quadriplegic become acutely depressed right after it happens, but they're back to their pre-morbid level of life satisfaction within a couple of years same with people who win the lottery for example they have an initial burst of happiness but then they trend back to their level of happiness within a couple years of what they were prior to the event happening so the studies show that our first of all we are very poor at predicting how happy we are going to be if certain things happen or don't happen our happiness is dependent on many little things that happen throughout the day way more than whether I'm going to get a divorce or I'm going to get fired or a financial issue, you get a promotion. Those things have much less to do with our day-to-day happiness. And this brings up the issue of being in the moment and enjoying each moment. This is a concept, I don't know how much you want me to go into this right now, but is really the key to life satisfaction is how am I doing right now with myself? Am I in the moment? Because when people are are fully engaged in what they are doing right now, there is a sense of satisfaction, even if what we are doing is boring, allegedly, like mowing the lawn or doing the dishes. If we are fully engaged and not distracted, we have a sense of happiness. When we start thinking about the past, I can't believe that argument I had with my wife, I can't believe what happened at work yesterday, we start to feel dissatisfied. We start thinking about the future I have so much to do later this afternoon. I have a lot to do this weekend. We start to feel dissatisfied because there's nothing we can do about the past and there's nothing we can do about the future. The only time we can do anything is right now in this moment. And when we accept that right now is the only time we can do anything and be exactly where we are now, there is a sense of satisfaction. And I promise you, and the people listening to this podcast, at times when you have felt satisfied, it's highly likely because you are enjoying being where you are at that moment.
0: So that's a concept that's been around for thousands of years, right? I think you, in your book, you indicated the Buddhist called it waking up. I think the chapter-
1: Yes, it's in every culture, it's in every religion. It's because, because independently people have realized this, that this concept is most important. And I can take the most effective action right now. For example, it's 11 in the morning right now. I can tell myself all I want that I'm going to exercise this afternoon and I'm going to do a bunch of push-ups, you know, at five o'clock to make myself feel better right now. But the only time I can decide to exercise, either I'm going to exercise right now or I'm not, but I'll make that decision at five o'clock whether or not I'm going to exercise or not. So attempting to get out of the moment by trying to recreate the past or the future leads people to feel dissatisfied.
0: So again, not not a new concept. Probably many of us have heard it time and time again, but yet very few of us apply it to our own life. It feels as though the world is as noisy as ever. You know, there's external stimulus everywhere. We have these little supercomputers in our pockets that are buzzing and binging all the time. So, not a new concept, but very rarely applied. I guess. How does one get started? What are some of the disciplines that people need to embrace? To begin to learn some of this mindfulness that's highly correlated with true fulfillment in life. Right. So,
1: two parts of that one is daily meditation, and that involves sitting in a quiet place and focusing on one's breath or a single word and noticing our automatic thoughts and feelings and physical sensations and uncritically looking at them and realizing, you know. I kind of think the same negative thoughts over and over again. Are these thoughts true or are they kind of running my life and they don't need to be? And meditation has been shown to improve depression, anxiety. It reduces cardiac angina, fibromyalgia pain, migraine headaches. So it has a real biological element to it. But more importantly, it allows us to see some of the automatic thoughts that are driving our life that we're acting on as if they're true, because just because we have a thought repeatedly doesn't mean it's true, but we act as though it's true. I can't do this, I'm no good at that, she doesn't like me, without any kind of evidence necessarily to back that up. So daily meditation is the first part. The second part is throughout our day, being in the moment, focusing on what we are doing right now. And I refer to as putting your attention on the working surface. So for example, when you're washing the dishes, it's, it's where the sponge hits the plate. When you're walking, it's where your foot hits the pavement. And we can only focus on one thing at a time. If you are doing the dishes and watching TV and listening to your children, you think you're multitasking, but you're not actually effectively doing any of the three. And that sense of dissatisfaction. So this is one of the reasons people want to be on camera in uh, conference calls is because we're distracted between the conference call and whatever email or cat video we're watching, that leads to dissatisfaction and depression. People who are looking at their phone 200 times a day, there's this little bit of dopamine hit that becomes addictive. That wears out your system really quick. And people who are looking at their phone more frequently have a higher level of anxiety and depression. Uh, And so the key is to do one thing at a time and just do the one thing. People think, well, I'll get less done. You'll actually get more done because you're actually focusing on the task at hand. And that is a practice that people can have to remind themselves to bring themselves back to what they're doing right now.
0: You said sometimes we'll tell ourselves thoughts that aren't, aren't entirely true. And so it's sometimes important to crash these thoughts that we have in a moment of stillness into kind of a reality check. I understand that you later in life discovered an artistic aptitude that at one point in time, the inner narrative was, I can't do this. I, I'd love to unpack that story with you.
1: Sure. Well, I still don't have the ability to do it, so but I'm still doing it. So,
0: so I talk about <laughs> that
1: we have these limiting beliefs that keep us from doing things. And and one of them I had is that I'm not artistic. I've never, never taken an art class. I can't draw a cap. But I started doing some painting on my own and think, Jackson Pollock. I'm basically dribbling paint on a canvas on the floor of my garage. And I wouldn't show anybody them. And then my girlfriend, Judy, who's much more spiritually connected than I am and, and much more artistic than I am, said, You know, these are pretty good. You should take them out. And I said, Well, I think she's just trying to get on my good side. But I cautiously brought them from the closet downstairs and people seemed to like them. And then Providence had a, an art show and the ones I had up sold, surprisingly. And then People kept purchasing them, and I've been doing them for a number of people. And before the pandemic started, a modern art gallery in downtown Los Angeles was going to take six or eight of them to sell in the gallery. And I thought, really? I mean, you know, I just dribble paint on on the floor. She goes, no, these are very artistic. And I still struggle with, are they? I mean, people keep wanting them. But it was a limiting belief I had that I've had to overcome. So now I've changed my belief from I have absolutely no artistic talent to I have the most minimal amount of artistic talent to actually sell a painting. But the other element of this is I do it for fun. I only do it when my mind is clear and I focus only on that. And whatever happens, happens. If I make a mistake, there are no more mistakes because it's abstract anyway. So if I accidentally spill painting, it was meant to be, and I just keep going until I feel that it's completed, there's a sense of freedom. And there's no attachment that someone's gonna like it or not because I don't care if they buy them or they don't buy them, I'm doing it for myself. And that's why in part, I have trouble letting them go once I do them. There's no attachment to how it turns out and that's what makes it work for me. But it's an example of a lot of people have these beliefs that keep them from doing something they would really like. And there's not enough evidence to keep them from actually doing it.
0: So I guess what would be a good way to inventory we need confidence, we need some confidence, but we can't have unearned confidence, maybe like, I guess there's a a point where you're kind of hubris, there's hubris or ego, but I guess what would we inventory? How do we identify what some of those self-limiting thoughts might be or which ones are most destructive in our current life?
1: Well, I think two parts. I think it's important for people to write down what they want out of their life. And I've had many, many people do this, and it's very rare that it's not pretty achievable. I think the things that get in people's way are they don't think they can do it with these limiting beliefs, or they don't feel they're worthy of it. And so it's a, it's a self-worth issue. But once we write down what it is we want, in combination with the automatic limiting belief, I can't do this, I'm no good at that, they'll say no if I ask them, etc. I have one example where I wanted to be involved in this program as many years ago, but I thought They're not going to want me. I'm not experienced enough. I don't know what I'm doing. But then I got the guts to ask. I go, oh my gosh, I can't believe you want to do it. We're super happy to have you do it. You can be medical director. And so my negative thought was so off the mark, but I lived as though that was true. So there there isn't an opportunity to change what you're doing without getting out of your comfort zone. In order to grow, we have to be comfortable getting out of our comfort zone.
0: Absolutely. I want to marry what you just said with an earlier statement. You've said we're, as a species, not a great predictor of our future self in terms of what will make us happy or sad. And so when when you're posed with a question like, what do you want out of life? I think that's a phenomenal question. But if we're not necessarily great at forecasting what would make us happy, how can you answer that question so that you're not chasing a mirage? Does that make sense? Well, because even though you may have the end... In mind,
1: all you can do is the next step. For example, I have this project at work that's, I don't know, 200 steps, and I have an end in mind, and I don't know what all the steps are, but I know what the next few steps are. Yeah, and it may change because as you go up the mountain or in the gully or whatever it is, your perspective is going to change with each step. If you're on a hike, it, you, when you turn the corner, the view is going to be different, and then you make your decision based on the view at the time. You're not wedded to what happens in the future. When I'm talking about people are, uh, have difficulty predicting, people will say things like, I'll be happy when I have $10 million in the bank. I'll be happy when I can retire and golf every day. I'll be happy uh, when I get the promotion. That's where I'm saying that they're not necessarily, I'm saying have goals based on what you want to be doing right now and every minute going forward. Not I'm going to suffer for 20 years at a job I don't like so I can earn enough money so I can retire so I can golf every day. That's not a very satisfying way to live your life.
0: There's a saying, I think it's a Spanish saying, but it translates to English is there is no road. The road is made as you walk. I'm a personality type that's comfortable with a higher level of ambiguity or uncertainty, but I, I believe others don't see and experience the right. world the same way. Do you run into people that, that are less comfortable kind of making the road as they walk? Right, I mean, I,
1: I think some people are satisfied with where they're at but a lot of people are too anxious to, to get out of their comfort zone and take those risks because at each position I've taken, I've opened myself up for making mistakes. I make a lot of mistakes in my current job and then I own them as best I can and I move on, but there's not necessarily a safety net in terms of uh, I'm always gonna make the, a decision that everybody's gonna like or I'm always gonna make the best decision. So you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that is part of another aspect of this, which is becoming our authentic self, our willingness to be vulnerable. And Brene Brown's written a number of books on this in that our authentic self is our best self. So when I put myself forward, I do my best to just be myself because when I attempt to pretend to be what I think you want me to be, way more opportunities for mistakes. And then I'm making a mistake, not even being my true self. And so being... Comfortable with my limitations and my strengths, and not trying to defend myself in terms of shying away from opportunities because I could screw up. That's what makes you know life exciting and meaningful to me.
0: So as I, I'm curious now to kind of pivot the conversation a little bit more to you. I mean, you've you've spent so much time, energy, and effort learning in this area, growing in this area, helping others grow in this area. I guess where in your life right now are you kind of getting outside of your comfort zone and what are some of your own kind of priorities to further align values and time?
1: Well, great question. We talked about my art a little bit. In my current position, when this regional position came available, I decided that it wasn't important to me whether or not I got the position because I didn't feel the need to have this title because I will tell you, my kids don't really understand what my title is. It was important to me that i could achieve the goals i have based on my values so when i did a series of interviews and panel interviews and whatnot i said these are the five things i would do if i was in this job and if it's a fit it's a fit if not it's not so i've become much better at not being attached to the outcome while putting myself out there to achieve what i want to achieve because once we get attached to the outcome we either rise or fall on whether we achieve it, and we also change ourselves in order to achieve the outcome. I'm not sure if that's making any sense. And then once I got the job, nobody surprised that I go, "Well, this was number three on my list but <laughs> I said I was going to do." And everybody knows that that's what I'm going to do. There's no surprises, and they hired me as me. I didn't tell them what they want to hear, as far as I can tell, and I they get exactly who I am. And so over the years, I've been able to accept that I'm a big dork. I do have some skills. I do have some experience. I have strengths. I have weaknesses. And I'm comfortable with all that. And if they were comfortable with all that, then we move forward. And I I attempt, anyway, to do that in all the aspects of my life. But it took a long time to shed this, I have to have a certain style. I have to have a certain demeanor. I have to toe the party line in certain ways. All those things kind of detract from me being who I am and being fully satisfied in my daily life.
0: How do you separate yourself from, from outcomes? That's a trait that a great poker player will discuss. It's a trait that a great golfer will discuss. Sometimes it's actually a trait that from an investment perspective, the right financial move doesn't always create the, the outcome that we want in the short term. How do we separate ourselves from, from outcome bias? I don't know that I can explain it adequately,
1: and I'm still working on this. I mean, you know, Buddhist, one of the, his big statements is that attachment is the source of all suffering. When we become attached to an idea of happening or not happening, we rise or fall based on whether that that thing happens or not. And so it involves kind of these three steps that I use. I'm a big believer in manifesting, not necessarily in a magic way, but but what do I want? And so what I do is I ask for what I want, what I truly want, and then I take effective action or inspired action, but then I need to let it go because I've, once I, let's just say interviewing. So I interviewed and then I let it go because it's not up to me anymore. It's out there, the investment's out there doing its thing. Yeah. And if I'm attached to getting the job, or if you're attached to, to whether the investment works out or not, that stress is ruining your day-to-day life. And we need to be able to let it go because we know that whether that happens or doesn't happen, it's not going to substantially change your happiness in your day-to-day life anyway. And once we let it go, we're going to feel a lot more satisfied. I don't know if that fully explains it, but at least some perspective.
0: It does. Back in college, I kicked field goals and some of them went through and some of them didn't, but I did did a whole lot of Twisting and turning once it was off my foot, and it didn't seem to influence the flight of the ball at all.
1: Well, you don't know because maybe it did. it would have missed by worse if you didn't do that twisting and turning <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah, for sure. Well, Brian, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, this conversation could have gone for four hours versus forty minutes, but I really enjoyed the opportunity to cover some of this stuff again, we're trying to create unique experiences that really prepare families for generational flourishing and understanding kind of values and how do we can do better to align time and values, get that clarity and alignment. And really at the end of the day, that's what we're all pursuing. I loved our conversation today and I'm confident our audience did as well.
1: Sure. And if anything you want to talk about in the future, just let me know. Awesome. All right. right. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you.